Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. These days, hydrogen as a low-carbon fuel is a very hot topic. I get my inbox is full every day from hydrogen organizations or somebody promoting hydrogen or reporting on hydrogen. And also, uh, you would not be surprised to learn that many of the folks in the energy community uh, are technical people, they're engineers or they have a technical background of some other kind, maybe they're economists. And I get a lot of queries about why, uh, why hydrogen is economic. For instance, if you make blue hydrogen out of natural gas, they say, why don't you just ship the natural gas in a pipeline or as LNG and let somebody else convert it to hydrogen, do whatever they want with it. If it's green hydrogen where you need uh, renewable electricity, they say, why don't you just ship the electricity to them over transmission lines let, and then use it you know, in electrical, electric processes, electric technologies. Well, I'm going to talk to Dr. David Lazell, who is a professor at the University of Calgary and the energy systems architect for the nonprofit Transition Accelerator about the economics of hydrogen, why it is economic and why it makes sense. So welcome to the interview, David. Great to be here. Thank you. Now, we're going to get into, into the, the weeds on this a little bit in just a moment, but if you had an, an, an Alberta oil and gas engineer and you were, you know, in, in, in the kind of conversations I have, and no doubt you have as well. And they said, why just not ship them out natural gas? Why not just ship them the electricity? Let the customer worry about how he wants to use it. If he wants to convert it into hydrogen or just use it with natural gas, isn't that the most efficient, low cost means of doing it as opposed to going, you know, through electrolysis or methane steam reforming? Well, how would you respond to that? Well, I think obviously the the big issue here is climate change, and um, um, and if you ship them natural gas, that's great. When they burn the natural gas, it releases, it gives you uh, gives you energy, it gives you heat energy or the energy you might want uh, to run a process, but it also releases CO two. And most many parts of the world don't have the geological. Uh, resources to actually store that CO2. And also when a typical user uses only a small amount of, of, uh, of, of, of methane at one time. And so the amount of CO2 isn't very great. And in order to make carbon capture and storage work, one has to do it at a large scale. Typically, you know, the rule of thumb that we use is about 2 million tons of CO2 per year is kind of where um, geological carbon capture and storage actually works and you can make it. And you can really only uh, handle uh, that scale of, of carbon dioxide production um, in very large industrial facilities. So obviously, you know, having handing people methane to burn in their house or, you know, to put in a vehicle, to, to drive a vehicle, the amount of, uh, you, you just can't handle the small amount of CO2 through millions of vehicles or millions of homes 
Uh, and you just can't capture that CO2, it ends up going to the atmosphere. So if we're really interested in addressing climate change, we have really need zero emission energy carriers. Could be electricity or it could be hydrogen. Now, if you want electricity, move electricity. If you need hydrogen, it's actually cheaper to move hydrogen in a pipeline than it is to move electricity in a wire, it, oh. especially when you're starting in large quantities. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so uh, the argument here, I guess, is if we need low carbon fuels, then hydrogen may not be the most efficient. It may not be the lowest, lowest, lowest cost uh, form of energy, but it's still it's low enough cost and and efficient to be economic, and it solves a pro a very pressing problem that has other higher costs and higher other higher impacts that we are really worried about. Well, exactly. And I think a lot of it is is um, electricity doesn't store very well. You can store it in a battery, but it's expensive and it's quite heavy. Um, you can you can hydrogen, of course, is a chemical form of an energy carrier. And the reality is, is when you look at different parts of our economies and energy systems, some, um, you know, in some parts of our energy system, electricity is the better energy carrier. In others, electricity doesn't work very well. If you're flying an airplane, uh, you know, you maybe can't give enough energy in a battery to get the plane off the ground and, and fly long distances. So you need a chemical form of energy storage, big ships as well, trains, heavy trucks. And so in those cases, you know, the, the, the ability to store and to move the energy with you and use it when you need it uh, has a real advantage. And, and those are the parts of our new energy system that we're trying to see emerge where where hydrogen plays a particularly valuable role. So let me sum this up at a very high level, David, and maybe this is like a, a principle of the energy transition, is we have to move to a net zero economy, a net zero energy system. And we have to, and we, and we have a variety of fuels, uh, electricity, hydrogen, uh, 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 foremost among them, uh, and and they all have different applications in various parts of the economy, buildings, transportation, power sector, industry, and having that. Uh, even though it, you know hydrogen may not be as perfectly efficient as some other fuel, but in the overall scheme of things, it's the lowest cost and most efficient for that application. Yes, and, and best fit for service. We often use the, the fit for service. You can might have something that could be lower cost in the short term, but if it's not going to actually meet the need that you have for the energy service you're primed to, you're primed to provide, um, then it's not going to work. And um, and and there's cost is really important. Let's be honest, it's, it's very important, but it's not the only thing. And efficiency is very important. But sometimes, uh, you know, convenience, efficiency, uh, you know, fit for service is more important is more important than efficiency or even more important than than incremental cost for the electricity, because ultimately the cost is what's the impact on the overall cost of what the service you're trying to deliver. And sometimes it's better to pay a little bit more for your energy and uh, be, because it actually saves in other maybe saves labor or it saves, uh, you know, more convenience, gives you a better product in the end. And that's really the market's going to decide that. Yeah, that's that's, a, that's where I was going with my next question, is the role of the market here in sorting out 
what's most efficient and what's most economic in which application. So for instance, I know you're involved, the Transition Accelerator is involved in a pilot project with two uh, class eight semi uh, freight hauler, uh, freight, it's a freight hauling pilot project between Alberta and uh, sorry, Edmonton and Calgary in Alberta yep. uh, uh, using hydrogen, uh, uh, hydrogen to, to fuel those trucks. And just yesterday, Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla, tweeted out that that they're starting to deliver Tesla semi-trucks. They've got uh, these Class 8 trucks. They've got a, a range of 500 miles. Okay, so now we have, we have your hydrogen pilot project and others that are taking place around the world. We now have an electric semi-truck, but the market will sort out which one is, is more economic and, and better fit for service in different applications. Yes. And, and, you know, and I think the, there's a role for both uh, when in our analysis and, and certainly in working with the trucking companies that, that want to deliver trucking services or the manufacturers that are making these vehicles uh, in, you know, in the, in medium duty trucks that are usually typically delivering under 15 tons uh, of, you know, a gross vehicle weight for the truck. Uh, electric vehicles are often, and they're often driving shorter distances. Um, plug-in electric makes a lot of sense. Um, when you actually get to longer range trucks and and carrying very large loads, and in Alberta and across Canada, we have a, a lot of the, most of the freight is moved on these 63 ton gross vehicle weight trucks, which, uh, you know, you try to put batteries on those things and, and they want to, they need to be driving you know, many, many hundreds of kilometers, like four or 500 kilometers between refueling, then it's very, very challenging. And they want a really rapid refuel. When they pull in, the driver is being paid by the hour. They have to get their uh, stuff to market. They can't stop in and take two hours to charge a vehicle. Uh, they are going to need to get in, get refueled and and move on. And that's where the uh, most of the companies are recognizing, you know, the companies that are manufacturing these vehicles or, and certainly the carriers are much more interested in hydrogen options, hydrogen fuel cell options for the heavy freight side. So that's the target. We uh, started this AceTech project with the Alberta Motor Transport Association, with a number of other industry partners, Trimac and Bison in the trucking, with Ballard Fuel Cells and Dana Transport designing the trucks to build the really the first of the kind uh, in the world of a 63 growth ton gross vehicle weight tractor trailer trucks that could operate in long distances running under under severe weather conditions that we seem to have up here in Alberta where uh, it gets pretty cold in the winter and uh, and we want to test and see whether these trucks are actually going to be able to do the fit for service um has that pilot project started it's we are flat out in the truck design I just got out of another meeting about an hour ago on uh, with the trucks uh, performance, we're it's going to be next summer before the uh, the trucks will be out. We've uh, you know there's 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 been some uh, it's a pretty big technical challenge uh, designing from scratch um, the true trucks, and you'll be very happy to know that I've not been involved in designing the trucks at all. Uh, it's been uh, experts within Dana Transport and with Ballard and and some of the other companies that are working with those companies that are actually designing these from scratch. And uh, and building them as we speak, they're being built in Montreal actually, and they will be uh, tested early testing in Montreal and be uh, coming out here um, next summer. 
You know, I'm a big fan of engineers doing the designing and engineering. I think that's a good, that's a good principle. I think it's a good, yes. Now, yes. by the same token, I also always tell the engineers on Twitter, but you're not very good at, at politics. Stay out of <laughs> politics and policy because stick to engineering and design. Yeah, that's your, yes. yeah. Well, Indeed. look, let's, let's talk about production costs um, because there are uh, two uh, forms of hydrogen that are we're generally talking about here. One is blue hydrogen made yeah. from natural gas using the methane steam reforming uh, a process. And then the other is green hydrogen uh, using uh, cheap uh, renewable electricity and water. Uh, let's start with blue hydrogen. Well, maybe let's maybe what we should do is talk about what costs are needed in which markets, because that's part of a study that you've done around the techno-economics of hydrogen. Tell us what kind of costs we need in the various, you know, the power and transportation and, and buildings and so on. Well, if we're if you're trying to make hydrogen as a heating fuel in Canada and actually most places around the world, but Canada, United States, for sure, we pay a lot less for each gigajoule, each unit of energy when we're going to burn it for providing heat. Sort of it's a it's considered a low, you know, a low value use, if you like. But when you're actually buying transportation fuels, uh, we end up paying some five to 10 times more for a transportation fuel than for a heating fuel. Uh, and depending on, you know, the price of gas, uh, gasoline for your car versus the price of natural gas for your building. And also uh, governments have tended to, uh, because they don't want people freezing to death, you know, and they're in, in, in home is a very basic, uh, you know, the heating for houses is pretty a primary need in, in Canada. Uh, and, uh, and they don't put as many taxes on the, uh, on the on the home heating fuels, um, as as they might do uh, on transportation fuels to pay for roads, etc. And so, as, as a result, um, it's it's easier. We can make hydrogen um, probably at a at a cost which is uh, for that is uh, acceptable for as a transportation fuel uh, for two reasons. One is is we pay more for it, but the second is is that when you put hydrogen into a through a fuel cell to move a vehicle forward the whole drivetrain is more efficient. Uh, it's, you know, a typical drivetrain of a gasoline vehicle or a diesel vehicle is, you know, somewhere between 20% and maybe 35% efficient. So that means 20 to 35% of the chemical energy in the fuel actually is used to move the wheels forward and move the vehicle along the road. When you actually put hydrogen into a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle, uh, you can get probably about 45% or 50% efficiency in converting that chemical energy into motive force. And part of that is because the fuel cell is more efficient. Part of it is the fuel cell generates electricity and goes into electric motor, and they're about 90% efficient. And part of it is because these are electric vehicles, the hydrogen fuel cell electric, and so they have batteries on board. Uh, so they basically, it's kind of a hybrid type. They actually, the, the fuel cell generates it can drive the motor or it can actually store electricity in a battery and the batteries can drive the motor. So when you have, when you put the brakes on, on an electric vehicle, you can get the energy back from regenerative braking and put that in the battery as well. So you get some real drivetrain advantages. And, you know, when you put the vehicle into uh, an idle, you know, in a hydrogen electric vehicle, uh, the fuel cell can just shut itself off and it can start up quickly. It can use the batteries for the first, you know, few seconds and then the fuel cell can start up and start providing more electricity. Whereas you don't get that sort of uh, in most diesel engines, 
you know, they, the big diesels, they basically keep running all the time. So one, my takeaway from this converse, part of the conversation, David, is that is that hydrogen has applications in transportation that make it ad, yep. advantageous, has efficiencies uh, that might not be the same case if you were, say, trying to burn it in a furnace in a home. Or... That is absolutely true in terms of our current economy today. And that's where really it comes to fit for service. Now, if you're in a, you know, a city like Halifax or Vancouver, where the temperatures are relatively mild in the winter, um, then I think, you know, you could say, geez, the best way to heat our homes is to use heat pumps, where we actually provide electricity and we move heat from outside inside the house. And we basically have, we can get, you know, equivalent of the amount of energy it takes to move heat from outside to inside a house in a heat pump uh, is maybe one third or one quarter or about a third or so of the amount of energy would take to actually generate that heat uh, from scratch inside the house by through an electric heater or something of that sort. So you can get really high efficiencies, right? Like two or 300% efficient. Um, when you, but the problem is this, is when you've got in provinces like Alberta, where, it, where we spend a lot of our winter at minus 25, minus 30, minus 35, heat pumps don't work. And if they, and so what you have to do is, if you're gonna put electricity to provide it, the, the energy is you've got to provide a huge amount of electricity to meet the uh, energy needs for space heating in the winter. And they can, our calculations, and we're doing a detailed analysis on this now, trying to look at what is the opportunity for heat pumps in, in provinces like Alberta. Uh, our analysis comes at, you know, we're going to need about four times more electricity in each house, right? Now, if you'd have a city, you know, where all the houses all at the same time are using four times the amount of electricity that they normally use today, that requires a pretty major retrofit, right? And right. where are you going to get that electricity from? And the electricity demand is, is you're going to have to have electricity capacity made to actually provide that electricity uh, all at a time of year that, you know, for January and February, what do you do with all that electricity capacity in the summer? It just sits around unused. So we, Part of it is looking at, at a systems level, there might be an, an opportunity to, um, you know, there, there might be more of an opportunity for hydrogen to be a heating fuel in some parts of Canada uh, to, to meet the actual fit for service. What about industry? That That's an industry that, or that's a, a sector that I hear all the time uh, is ripe for for hydrogen and we're talking about you know sure. steel making uh, that sort of thing yes uh but then we have there was a a steel plant in hamilton that converted to a to electric uh is and and i and i see economists on my uh, social media feeds now saying oh hang on a second you know we thought hydrogen would be big in industry but now we're seeing some electricity move maybe there's more opportunity for electricity and in decarbonized industry than we thought. What's your take on that? Well, I think there's in steel making, there's a lot of steel making today is recycling steels. You know, when your car gets old and you trade it in, it gets crunched up and then sent to a steel plant where it gets melted down and made into more steel. So that's a recycling. Steel is fantastic recycling. If you're recycling steel, there's a very significant opportunity to use electric arc furnaces. So electricity, essentially, to 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 help them to melt the steel and to recycle it. Um, if you're making um, steel from iron ore, 
right? In where we typically use large blast furnaces today with coke uh, to to do it, then that's um, it's it's difficult to use an electric arc furnace to replace that. So what we tend to do is if you're actually looking at making new steel from bringing iron ore in and making very high quality brand new steel from scratch, um, you know, there's a process called a DRI, direct reduction of iron. Now it can use in the, in where we're looking at today is it can use natural gas as a feedstock and you, the natural gas almost virtually at in the process gets converted to hydrogen and the hydrogen uh, reduces, it converts the iron oxide into essentially um, pig iron or, or iron that's going to go in and made into steel. Um, the, uh, you know, there's an opportunity to actually have that as a natural gas feedstock. It has lower emissions than using coke in a blast furnace, but there's a possibility of taking it to a net zero option where you replace that with hydrogen. And, and so there is a market for both. I think there's a, the electric arc furnaces and electricity and steel making is very important. Tends to be, you know, more important, of course, in the recycling. But if you're actually making iron from scratch, uh, then you know we need a, you know, we need a, a reductant. We need a is much more of a chemical reductant, and we need to actually um, probably use hydrogen if you want it to be a net zero. Well, that's a, the very interesting insights into the, some of the technical issues in the various in, uh, sectors and and some of the specific applications. So I think that gives us a, a better idea now. Of, you know what when industry looks at this, you know mm -hmm. which fuel to use. So the idea of some of the trade offs uh, yeah. they have and some of the complexities around that. So let's now talk about production costs, David. And we'll start with green hydrogen, um, which are we may, I mentioned earlier made with electrolyzers. Um, give us a sense of how, you know, what the costs are there and what we're likely to see uh, over the next five to 10 years. Well, if you have really low cost electricity, one can make green hydrogen at a competitive price with making blue hydrogen, but you need to have very low cost. Electricity typically under two cents a kilowatt hour. Now, now the price is coming down. There's also a cost. So in, in making hydrogen from electricity, there are really two main cost factors. One is the cost of the electricity, and the second is the cost of the electrolyzer. And the cost of the electrolyzers are relatively high cost right now, uh, and but they are coming down. And they're coming down pretty dramatically and in, in within the next few years. So the right now is a rule of thumb. If you had free electricity, you could probably make hydrogen for maybe as little as $1 a kilogram. And for every one cent a kilowatt hour, you know, maybe a dollar, dollar 20 kilogram Canadian dollars. For every one cent a kilowatt hour of electricity, you add about 50 cents uh, to the price of the hydrogen, right? So if you got four cents a kilowatt hour electricity, which is pretty cheap electricity, you know, that's pretty cheap for green electricity. If you had four cents, you're adding $2 to the price of the, the electrolyzer cost of frequent. So you're up to $3 a kilogram, which is more expensive than, than um, blue hydrogen. And I think that's really the issue is that whether, can you get really low cost electricity can we get the price of the electrolyzers down and produce the electricity where green electricity really has an opportunity is that it can produce, be produced in relatively small amounts where you need it. 
Um, so if you, you know, so if you're really only wanting to produce one ton a day or two tons a day, electricity is fantastic because it produces. If you want to produce one or two tons a day with, you know, with um, blue hydrogen from natural gas and capture the CO2, not possible. Not, you can't capture the CO2. It's not big enough scale. We need to be talking in blue hydrogen of 400 or 800 tons a day of hydrogen production, much bigger centralized facilities, huge where you're producing enough CO2 to, to justify the cost of capture and geological storage. They, they occupy different markets in some ways. Is there, there is there a any, role for both of them. Is there any chance here for uh, small local uh, green hydrogen production? And so, you know, let's say that we're talking about trucking. And yes. which means you have to have a fueling infrastructure. And one of the ways to do that would be to pipe hydrogen around to all of the, you know, the service stations in the various parts of, let's say, Alberta. You know, every, you know, small town or village would have a, a fueling station. Or uh, because water's plentiful, uh, especially in the southern Alberta, uh, wind and solar are relatively economic. And could you, in a, say, like in a, you know, like a, a small town like Tabor, Alberta, Wainwright, yep. Alberta, Devon, Alberta. Yep. Could you set up an electrolyzer so that all local needs, uh, all the market demand from the, the local economy is met locally with local production? Um, yes and no. So we've actually got a study which is coming out in December uh, on exactly this, where we're looking at a dedicated wind and solar farm uh, that would actually provide a two ton a day fueling station for heavy duty trucks. So two tons a day every day for around a year. Um, the analysis was an optimization model. It was we situated it in southern Alberta. So we've got um, you know how many wind how many wind turbines do we need? How many solar panels do we need to get the optimal use of it? How big the electrolyzer should be in order to provide the lowest cost hydrogen to the fueling station. And the big problem is we were using wind and solar data for Southern Alberta for the last 10 years to analyze variability and could we meet the needs? How much would we have to store? And our biggest problem is there's every year it seems or every other year, there's like about two week period in Alberta where in the middle of winter, the wind stops, it's sunny, but there's, you know, but the, basically, you know, the, the days are short, we're talking January typically. And we cannot, we don't have enough renewables to make it. So we had to then design into this design system, um, bringing in hydrogen uh, to actually make up for those days. And we can pay a higher price for that hydrogen, but to keep the fueling station running year round. And I think that's kind of the, the challenge that we were dealing with to, to you know, because this was an off-grid system we were looking at. I think there's opportunities to do exactly what you're talking about. Uh, and, you know, and the, the economics was actually pretty good, right? Looked like it could work when you're actually considering that you were making electricity right where you needed it and you didn't have to transport the electricity long distances. We are doing some more work in that, that area now because we think that's a significant opportunity for Canada. Um, because there's not only the cost of making the electricity or making the hydrogen, if you make it centrally, there's a big cost in moving it from where you make it to where it's needed. And in fact, that cost can be, especially in small volumes, can be actually greater than the cost of making the hydrogen. And that's part of the biggest problem we have. So if I understand this correctly, 
Um, if you've got low carbon electricity at a reasonable price, so under $40 a megawatt hour, and and you have all the water you need at, I mean, basically in Canada, that means almost zero cost or low cost anyway, you can make green hydrogen for around maybe under $3 a kilogram. Yeah. Now, I've the most of the estimates that I've seen so far, given the existing cost of of, of electrolyzers, uh, is about six dollars. Well, I don't think they're. I think a lot of them are looking at um, uh, delivered electricity, and of course, we're talking the cost. There's not much profit in that at three dollars, or very little, just barely make it breaking even. Um, but also. You know, when you actually buy electricity, you pay a price for electricity, but you pay a price to have it delivered right through the grid. So if you're actually relying on grid electricity, it's a typical, you know, you can easily pay three cents or even four cents a kilowatt hour just for the delivery. And that's on top of the price you pay for the electricity. So so then when you're talking eight dollars or seven dollars or eight dollars a megawatt hour, um, you know, or, you know, 70 or 80 dollars a megawatt hour, seven or eight cents a kilowatt hour. Uh, one is um, you know, one's talking an extra four dollars per kilogram, right? On on the uh, price of the hydrogen, plus the cost of the electrolyzer to the capital cost and operating cost of the electrolyzer. You know, now you're into your, you know, your 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 much higher prices, right? Five, six, seven, and so so the the issue ultimately is there's also an issue of scale, how big your electrolyzer is, and and you know. And I, you can make it work. I think we 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 need a um, we're probably going to need all of the above. I can virtually guarantee we're going to need green hydrogen. We're going to need blue. We're going to need the infrastructure to connect them and back each other up. We have an opportunity with hydrogen is to get so the electrical system that we have and our energy system for electricity and the energy system we use for transportation fuels and maybe even heating fuels are more integrated and they can back each other up. And I think this is, we have an opportunity now, which we haven't had in probably 60, 80 years, 100 years, to actually build a new, more robust energy system. And hydrogen is part of that. Figuring out how to do it in what area in the best way is uh, is, a, is a key challenge. Uh, well, I want to talk about the cost of electrolyzers, David. But before we, we, we get into that discussion, please refresh my memory about how we calculate the cost. Is it per megawatt hour per megawatt? I Well, the cost the cost is um, for, the, well, there's a capital cost, which is called CapEx. And typically that's uh, for electrolyzer, is it per the dollars per kilowatt of installed capacity? So if a kilowatt of installed electrolyzer could would actually use a you know a, a in one hour it would use a kilowatt hour of electricity and put that into making hydrogen right to 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 do the electric so that's essentially on the um, on the capital cost. There's also the operational cost, which is going to be providing the water, providing the staff that's going to have to maintain it, and you know and all of that, and uh, and keep a watch over it, in which you know. And the capital, the operating cost gets lower as you get bigger, because you can you can use your staff more efficiently, and and then there's the energy cost, the cost to run it, which is the cost of your electricity, and and so you add the three of those together, and that's your overall cost. Okay, so the cost I wanted to talk about was the cost per kilowatt of installed capacity, and I saw just a couple of days ago uh, an article from a reputable 
uh, uh, energy uh, website uh, that the Chinese are now beginning introducing to the uh, into the market uh, electrolyzers that uh, whereas they used to be twelve hundred thirteen hundred dollars per kilowatt are now about three hundred and fifty dollars per kilowatt and a lot of it has come from you know learning cost the learning curve the you know the, yep. just like wind and solar and batteries and electric vehicles and, and now uh, you know that the these electrolyzers were on that learning curve now the costs are down of course china knows how to how to manufacture these manufacture technologies yeah. at scale and so now they've got now is that a credible report or is that's a tremendous reduction in cost that's a tremendous tr- reduction and that is still you know that is in the exactly the range that we've been looking at as well uh we're looking at now those dollars were probably american dollars uh so you know we'd be talking higher than that in canadian dollars um but you know if you can get it down to 350 dollars american now the other question you have to watch when you're buying an electrolyzer is how efficient it is uh a typical electrolyzer now is maybe 54 kilowatt hours per kilogram right how much how many you know, kilowatt hours it takes to make each kilogram of hydrogen. Um, And, you know, theoretical maximum efficiency is about 39. But, you know, some of the, you want an electrolyzer that has the lowest electricity use per kilogram. If you get it around 50, that's fantastic. If you can get it into 45 or 48, that's what everybody's dreaming they're going to get to pretty soon. The other issue is it's maintenance cost. If you could, you might be able to buy a cheap electrolyzer, but if you got to go in and take it apart and replace components, then your operational cost goes higher. So you need to look at if you're buying electrolyzers, you don't just look at the capital cost. You look at its efficiency, how much hydrogen do you get from each size? And you also have to look at, uh, you know, the cost of, uh, of maintaining it and keeping it running. And will it run 24 hours a day, uh, you know, um, you know, seven days a week? Or if you're you know, there is another possibility is that you could get an electrolyzer that might be lower cost because you're only going to run it when in the middle of the night, right? When the electricity is really cheap. And and you may find that you can, then the electrolyzer will last a lot longer without maintenance because you're only using it for four or five, six hours a day. Uh, when, when there's not demand on the grid, you know, between midnight and five in the morning or six in the morning, something like that, then, then you might find that, uh, you know, that, that works better, but gotcha. you CapEx is really important. Let's not- talk, let's move from, from green hydrogen to blue hydrogen now. And maybe just very briefly give us a, a, a description of how you make blue hydrogen. Well, today we take it, we make with um, hydrogen today from natural gas. It's called steam methane reforming, where you basically put um, natural gas with methane in it and water vapor in the form of steam put it together with a catalyst and it produces hydrogen. Essentially you separate the hydrogen and, and the CO2 typically is released to the atmosphere. Um, blue hydrogen, that's called gray hydrogen. And that uses steam methane forming. Most of the new projects looking at making blue hydrogen, it's gonna use a process called autothermal reforming. And, and this is a project where it's, it's a slight steam methane form, very similar but it uses a, an integrated process which actually produces two gas streams. It produces pure hydrogen and pure CO2. And so when you actually want to capture the CO2, it's the more cost-effective and more efficient process, right? Than trying to patch and put a patch kit on an old steam methane reformer. 
But, you know, the scale of these are typically, you know, 200 tons a day to 400 tons a day. The ones that are being built being built now in Alberta are about eight to 900 tons a day. They're where the hydrogen is then going to feed into industrial uses. Uh, there, that's one of the challenges with steam methane reforming. To get it to, you, it has to be quite large. Um, but, you know, it's, you can capture about 94%, 90, 92 to 94% of the carbon dioxide produced, uh, that is produced, can be captured and geologically sequestered, kept out of the atmosphere. The, the other issue that's really important in steam methane reforming is what are the emissions associated with making the natural gas in the first place? And I think that's kind of the Achilles heel now rate of large scale movement to uh, to natural gas uh, as a energy carrier to make hydrogen as an energy carrier is a lot more focused now on the methane emissions in particular that are released by in the production and the recovery of the of the natural gas and um, there's a lot of pressure on the companies to clean that up because it's not very expensive for them to clean it up and they we really need to do it. Well, I want to tell a little story here. Uh, Please. Two, two, three years ago, I interviewed a University of Calgary economist who had written, uh, co-authored a paper on the economics of, or sorry, on the uh, methane emissions of uh, gas production in the three uh, Western provinces, BC, Alberta, yeah. and Saskatchewan. So in BC, where they have dry gas, that means it's not produced along with oil, uh, yeah. and where they had electrified it, the emissions were very low. They were about 0.3%. Uh, in Alberta, which has an older, uh, it, it, well, a lot of gas is produced uh, with uh, asso its associated oil. And it, the infrastructure is older and and therefore leakier. The It, it ranged anywhere from 3 to 6% or higher. And then in Saskatchewan was it was off the charts. It was all associated gas, and they you know they were do, the industry was doing a poor job of of mitigating emissions, and and it was just you know astronomical uh, leak rate. So here's the problem, though. At the end of the interview, the economist says to me, uh, "These are all we've done good work here. This is a but one caveat, and that is the data sucks because yeah. we don't have the measuring." the measurement technologies to accurately measure. And so we have no idea. Uh, and we strongly suspect that the, the emission, the leakage rate is much higher than, than, than the data suggests. And there've been a few, a few studies that have confirmed that. And so now we've got a couple of years, you know, just the last couple of years, we've we've got satellite sniffers and we have all sorts of now new technology, remote sensing technologies where we're much better at it. Uh, where, how does that fig figure into the conversations that you've had in Alberta about, you know, blue hydrogen? Well, I think it's um, those interested in moving towards a hydrogen economy using natural gas are recognizing that, if we don't clean up the upstream emissions and put proper rules and regulations in place and set the monitoring, we have the technology. We've had the technology to measure the methane emissions coming off of gas wells, you know, for the last 15 years or more, right? We we know how to, I mean, I was involved in projects trying to actually get access to the wells to actually set up the measurement system over 10 years ago, 12 years ago, and uh, we could never get access to the, so, so it's partly, you know, government has to come in, industry has to cooperate, 
to to um, allow independent measurements of what the real methane emissions are. And um, and we need to be able to monitor some satellites or something more recent. Uh, the, the technologies we were looking at were ground-based technologies, but satellite technology allows uh, some pretty powerful ways of checking uh, and monitoring. Um, it's often, these emissions don't continue, uh, emit continuously, they're sporadic and discontinuous, big blast and then it's nothing, right? So, so the problem is you need to be monitoring all the time, right? And, and then we need to, I would argue, that PTAC, the Petroleum Technology Alliance Canada, you know, Canada has done some details analysis of what it would cost to reduce emissions by 50% or more from methane emissions. And they're down, most of it's under $10 a ton of CO2. And, and so this is not, this is one of the lowest cost emission reductions in Canada uh, could be achieved with, by, by better regulation and uh, better compliance to those regulations. So my sense is we really need to start to, uh, we need carrots and sticks on this one. I think this is probably more of a stick, I would say, than a carrot. We need to start charging carbon taxes on the uh, essentially emissions from methane. And I'll tell you, they'll clean them up pretty quick because they can, they can save money. Uh, so I, I would think that needs to be a key part of where we go. Yeah, fair enough. And we don't, so let's leave that. That's a, almost a uh, methane emissions and mitigation uh, in Canada. That's a, a, a big topic all on its own. So let's move on to the costs. Uh, my understanding from your report is that the lowest possible cost is about a dollar eighty per kilogram, which is significantly lower than than green hydrogen. Is is that a, an accurate number? Yeah, I think a dollar eighty. If we if you could say two, actually probably three or four dollars a gigajoule for natural gas would allow you to get a dollar eighty per kilogram of hydrogen, right? And that's in a big processing plant with, you know, eight percent return on investment of the capital investment cost, et cetera, uh, uh, and that's kind of well within the range that the companies in Alberta are are currently, um, uh, you know, producing hydrogen for and, and and using it as industrial feedstock. Of course, we want to move that into smaller markets, which are transportation markets and you know and, and local markets. So the the price might be a little bit up from that. They want a little bit more, you know edge margin on that when you get to green hydrogen yeah you're using two to three times that often right so you, you'll be in in reality and it and, and the issue there really is what's the real cost of your electricity and and of course the cost of the electrolyzer as we've talked about so to wrap up our costs on the production of of, of, of hydrogen is it fair to say that well, I think we've agreed that electrolyzers are on a learning curve and the cost curve yeah. is, is bending down, has for, for a while and will continue to bend down. Uh, I'm, I'm hearing out to, you know, at least 2030 into the 2030s, we expect that costs are going to come down. Will we efficiency should go up. Yeah. Okay. So will we see the same kind of learning curve and downward bending cost curve for blue methane? That's a, our blue hydrogen. Yeah, I think um, probably a, a drop in the cost for carbon capture and storage. We are doing carbon capture and storage in Alberta now, probably a couple million tons a year is being done in some of the, the, the early CCS sites that have been set up. And there's um, good evidence that the actual cost to, to build those and deploy those at scale will come down. 
um, and and the technology to do carbon capture. As you move from the the technologies now have been putting on you know carbon capture systems on the end of a steam methane reformer, and that's very expensive. But if you were to build a plant from scratch uh, and put an autothermal reformer in that actually gives you a pure CO2 and a pure hydrogen stream, uh, the actual cost per ton of CO2 will come down. And our estimate is somewhere between 70 and $100 per ton of CO2 uh, is, is going to be the cost considered not of, of, of adding carbon capture and storage versus one where you're, you're not putting on. And that that is actually, uh, that cost could even come down from that when it when certainly when we've talked to the industry that are doing these things, that as we look at the overall, we, we start to build a bigger scale of it. We start to put the infrastructure in place that, uh, and and have multiple companies putting carbon into a shared pipeline for CO2 to take it in and set up sequestration sites where they're very efficient. Um, we, you know, all the indications are those price, those costs will come down. We estimate a cost coming down by perhaps 30%, whereas in electrolysis, it could come down 65%, right? I mean, it could be the numbers that you were talking about going from $1,200, a, a, you know, a kilowatt to 350 or something, uh, US dollars a kilowatt. Th- those, those are in electrolysis. We're not expecting that size, a magnitude of drop. Right. Let, let's talk now about uh, moving it around. Uh, which I take it will mostly be done by, by pipeline. Uh, Is there a chance that some or all of it can be, can be transported in repurposed oil and gas pipelines? Well, I guess I would, I would start by saying probably most of it initially is going to be done and by in a truck. All right. Like it's, we just don't have the pipelines. We got one fifty kilometer pipeline that, Air Products owns in Ed, in in Edmonton region, and there's another 30 kilometer one in Sarnia, Ontario. Uh, but you know, they we don't have the hydrogen pipeline yet, and there's not enough demand for using hydrogen as a energy carrier to justify pipeline investments today. So I would say for most of the probably the next 10 years, it's moving as compressed gas or as liquid hydrogen uh, in on trucks. If you're wanting to serve, say, a transportation market at a fueling station. Right. We might be able to get some unique spot. Oh, we can get a pipeline in here. Great. Right. But so I think in the near future now, eventually, if we actually start looking at hydrogen, well, if we look at the market in Alberta, for example, this is another study we've been doing now is we're looking at a projected market for the size of the hydrogen demand in Alberta for heavy duty trucks. It's about twenty five hundred tons a day. If we switched over, you know, about 80 percent of that in a heavy duty truck sector to hydrogen in the next 28 years. <laughs> at, you know, at that point, we're talking, you, you could see some pipelines going, you got big volumes, you could, you could, you could justify that um, by in pipeline. Uh, so, but if you actually then added space heating and you're adding power generation as other markets for hydrogen, absolutely pipelines are going to be needed. And that, and then the price per kilogram of the moving it um, drops to almost tenfold from what it would be to drive it in a truck, put it in a pipeline. That's when we really start meeting the benefits of a hydrogen economy, um, not only for the transportation sector, but also for space heating and power generation. Could we repurpose um, natural gas pipelines? Um, there's a, I know every company in a pipeline company I know is looking at all the different options. 
Uh, you know, the possibility of retro modifying the pipeline, putting a liner down it, spraying some material inside to make sure the pipeline is going to be uh, is still of high quality and, and, and be able to hold the hydrogen without any leaks or without embrittlement, which is one of the big issues of where hydrogen can affect the quality of the steel. And it's, it's uh, there is a, and there are even possibilities of putting additives into hydrogen in a natural gas pipeline that would actually protect the pipeline from being embrittled by the, by the hydrogen itself. Um, I think the jury's still out on how the repurposed of the big transmission pipelines. However, there's really good evidence that the distribution pipelines, the pipelines that come to each of our homes and provide us with natural gas, those tend to be plastic. And we might have to change the valves and the fittings on it and maybe the burners in your furnace, but you know, there's a, they, they could be reused in most cases. What about, uh, and we'll wrap up the conversation with this. Uh, I'm, I've interviewed, uh, well, Dr. Chris Bataille, economist that uh, used to be at SFU, uh, who wrote a paper for the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary about the economics of storing hydrogen in caverns, like salt caverns in yes. Alberta, and then and then using that hydrogen to replace uh, natural gas in in gas in power plants that have combined cycle. Uh, uh, gas plants. And what's your take on that? Is that ever going to be feasible or is that just theoretical at this point? There's a, I think a lot of it depends on this, the scale around it. It's, you know, there's a, there's two ways of really doing it. You could have a natural gas combined cycle power plant. And then if you needed to, you know, decarbonize it, obviously you could put a air a CO2 capture system on that plant and capture the carbon dioxide into it. That's an expensive way to do it. But, you know, if you're depending a little bit on the your business plan and when you had to decarbonize, uh, Alberta's at a point now where they much of its electrical grid has to be replaced in the next 10 years, right? Because, you know, we've got, we've got, we've got coal to gas plants there. They have a limited lifetime we need to replace it with a uh, with a new electric, a new generation. But the, that generation, there's no sense building something that you can't get to zero emission. So that's one option. The other option is that we, and there's a lot of work being done around the world in designing of new gas turbines, which will take, right now they take pure natural gas, that there's a number of being designed. There's one in Ohio that is being designed by General Electric. Siemens has got ones, Mitsubishi, um, uh, you know, other companies that are big, build big gas turbines where they, um, the gas turbines take natural gas, but they could take 10, 20, 30, 50% hydrogen if you wanted to decarbonize. And some of them with some modifications could take 100% hydrogen. So one possibility is we build out with the um, electricity producers within Alberta and across Canada are looking at what infrastructure you put in now which will position you to be on a net zero transition pathway, should we produce enough hydrogen that can, uh, and, and a distribution of that hydrogen, the pipeline infrastructure, that we can get hydrogen cheap enough at the power plant to be able to produce electricity. A typical power plant might need 400 or 500 tons of hydrogen a day on a combined cycle. So you basically need to, you need to plan well, you know, 
let's 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 build a maybe a, a a combined cycle natural gas power plant today, but make sure that the turbine we put in is hydrogen ready, and and as we then build out the hydrogen economy to meet heavy transport to meet space heating, we can tap into that and actually start having that feed this this uh, facility with um, with low cost hydrogen. And I think that the issue is is the scale. We have to have a plan. We're never gonna. We're not going to get the economics right unless we have a plan of where where we're trying to go. Well, getting Alberta to plan for anything in the new energy economy is is a challenge. Uh, but that's also true in other provinces and yeah. to some extent at the federal federal level as well. So we'll we'll leave that one for another conversation, okay. <laughs> David. But I do want to wrap up the the discuss our discussion this way. Uh, I think of technology adoption as an S curve. As, I mean, most yes. everybody does. Yep. But but let's plot where this technology is on that S curve. My take from our conversation and what I other interviews that I've done is we're not at quite at the the inflection point where yep. we're ready. You know, the 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 technology, the hydrogen technology, is ready to compete in the energy market with you know uh, electricity or with other low carbon fuels we're not quite there yet and i guess the question is where so if we're talking about the the flat part of the s curve and we're you know the, then there's yeah. the the heel and you're kind of heading up to go. the inflection point where are we on that on that s curve in your opinion we're certainly at the very start and we're at the um for uh, technologies like um hydrogen fuel cell electric heavy duty trucks we're at the very start for technologies like hydrogen diesel dual fuel we've actually got a 50 years worth of history it's never been deployed at scale but we know that hydrogen injection into a diesel engine will reduce its particulate matter improve the efficiency of the engine and can actually help decarbonize those trucks that technology i say is the potential further along if if we we, we set up the market for it right um with hydrogen use in space heating, we're probably a little bit earlier stage because hydrogen, but hydrogen bleeding in and go to say 2% or 5% or 10% hydrogen into natural gas, that technology could rise very rapidly, you know, as a partial decarbonization, basically a way to provide a variable buffer in the demand for hydrogen. You got a place to use it where it does some good, but, you know, it, and you could use it as a, as a sort of a, uh, helping to build out a hydrogen economy where we've got a place to put it. So each and hydrogen and power generation, I think it's probably the earliest where we could see happening in the next two years. And we're going to see within the next few months, uh, the first announcement of one where it's hydrogen, uh, reciprocal engine, hydrogen co-generation, where it's actually making uh, hydrogen is being used as a fuel in a building to provide heating for the building and electricity for the building. And there's some, there's some, uh, some, hydrogen engines that will do that right today that are available commercially. Um, so I think that we have a lot of moving parts here, literally, and some of the technologies are more ready for rapid expansion now. Other ones, I think, uh, you know, it'll be probably five more years before we're going to see them. But I think in the next three to five years, we need some pilots. We need the demonstration projects. We need to test things out. We need to you know, have really critical analysis and basic decision of where are we trying to take our energy system on this uh, new pathway we've got to try to get to net zero? What's it going to look like? So 
if I'm going to sum this up this way, and I think this is a fair summation, uh, if the very beginning of the S curve is the is the start, I think, and all of the technologies you talked uh, about are beyond that. They're not at the very beginning of that yes. S curve. Yes. And depending, but neither are any of the technologies past the inflection point on the S curve. So depending on the application, depending on the technology we're talking about, you know, blue hydrogen versus green hydrogen and all of the, where are you going to, your use case and all of those many things that we talked about, then they're all, all the hydrogen is, is between that early point on the S curve and the inflection point. And probably some of them, if I understand this correctly, over the next three to five years will have the potential to move at least to the inflection point, and then others will take longer than that. Is, is that a fair summation? I think that's a fair, I think that's a fair step. The only other, the only exception I would say to that is a lot of the energy companies now are really building the very large blue hydrogen facilities because they're going to take the hydrogen and use it to crack bitumen into synthetic crude oil. They're going to use it to make fertilizers like ammonia uh, for, for uh, you know, as you know, like the fertilizer, or they're going to use it to make gasoline, diesel, or or materials and chemicals. And and there is value in them. And that's going to happen in the next few years. But that what that means is we actually have, at least in Alberta and certain locations across Canada, we have a, a large amount of low carbon hydrogen being produced. And the idea is to tap into that and piggyback on that industrial use of hydrogen to drive our our domestic economy towards hydrogen and that will help but i don't i don't uh, disagree with anything you said well david this has been fascinating we've had a very detailed and involved conversation i really appreciate that and uh we'll be coming back to you on a regular basis to see how much progress we're making uh on those various technologies and applications well thank you very much for this thank you look forward to it